Welcome to The Edge by MGR with your host, David Gill. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Edge podcast by MGR, your host, David Gill here. I hope everybody's having a fantastic week as always. I certainly am. Today's episode was an all-timer thanks to the amazing guest we had, Tyler Cowan. Uh, Tyler is a professor of economics at George Mason University. He's the chairman of the Mercatus Center. He's a best-selling author many times over, and he co-runs an extremely successful blog, MarginalRevolution.com. Um, I'm a big fan of Tyler's work, and I'm incredibly grateful that he agreed to come on today. Also, one side note, I did stumble a couple times in my words, which isn't usual for me, but I'll admit I was a bit nervous talking to Tyler just because I am a big fan of his. Nonetheless, I hope you all enjoy this interview as much as I did, so let's get into it. I am joined today by Tyler Cowan. He is a professor of economics at George Mason University. He's also the chairman and director at the Mercatus Seller Center, a best-selling author, and the co-author of one of my personal favorite blogs, Marginal Revolution. Thank you for joining me today, Tyler. My pleasure. Thank you. So I wanted to start by asking you a couple questions about your new book, Stubborn Attachments, if that's all right with you. Sure, yes. So one of the ideas that you... Uh, brought up was that we should care a lot more about people in the future rather than just people today. But is it really possible or even practical, I guess you could say, for people to care about someone, say, who's going to be born 200 years from now? Uh, I think very much it is. So it's not that we can predict the details of our choices 200 years from now. But if you think about what problems we're likely to face, uh, the general approach that will give us the best results is simply to have healthy institutions. So I think one implication of the book is we should focus on the quality of our institutions above all else and be fanatically dedicated to that. And that is indeed the best way of caring about the distant future. We also should save more and produce more public goods and do more to protect certain parts of the environment. So you also say in the book that economic growth should be the number one priority so long as it doesn't impede on human rights. So I think yeah. one obvious example would be, you know, don't enslave people for economic growth. But what about a fringe right like, say, privacy? Should economic growth take precedent over privacy? Uh, it depends what you mean by privacy. But in most cases, I would say yes. I don't think of privacy as an absolute human right. Uh, privacy is your desire to manipulate the image which other people have of you. And I think it's often useful that we respect privacy. Uh, but a society which has less privacy and an overall higher rate of growth over time, I think will be a much better place than the lower growth society. Okay. And then human rights, I mean, like killing people, torturing them, kind of obvious depredations and exploitations. Right. Not things we would trade off at the margin. And then the final, my final question in the book, and this is probably the biggest question, is how much should you balance wealth redistribution with economic growth? Is there a right percentage or amount, or is it more nuanced? How should governments and just society go about that? I offer the recommendation of prioritizing growth. <clears throat> now, I stress there are many kinds of redistribution that boost growth. For instance, if a child has malnutrition, or is maybe about to die for lack of health care, and you save the child, give the child a better life, that person would be much more productive 
will pay taxes, will produce more output, may be an innovator. So there's plenty of redistribution, which I think can strongly be justified. But redistribution for its own sake, I'm not a big fan of. And one argument of my book is to nudge people away from focusing so much on inequality and really getting them to focus on growth. Should redistribution be uh, like cross-border or should it remain within countries? Should the U.S. spend more money on helping those in, say, Africa and other impoverished nations? Uh, in general, I'm a cosmopolitan, but one thing we're learning from contemporary politics is the backlash effect is much stronger than we had thought. Even migrants arriving in your country who get relatively small payments, uh, voters seem to hate that, and then to elect governments which do nasty things. So in my ideal approach, I would like to do more globally, but in terms of actual practical politics, I think this will largely remain a national issue. And uh, the biggest form of foreign aid the United States gives the world is by being the global policeman. And I'm a big supporter of that. I'd like to see us do a better job of it. Now, I have a question. This is more of a personal question, something that I see kind of uh, omitted in many economists' talks and writings. And that's when it comes to technological advancement in relation to inequality. Uh, you know, many point to stagnant wages over the last 40 years in the U.S., but they seem to neglect the fact that the same wage buys you an iPhone today when, say, 40 years ago, you know, $10 million couldn't have bought you an iPhone. Why is this kind of looked over so often, and do you think it's a good point? Well, I don't think it is looked over. There are some economists, most notably Chad Syverson, who've tried to estimate the undervalued gains from the tech sector, and they do show this means real wages have risen somewhat higher than we had thought, but not nearly enough to close the gap. That is, productivity growth and real wage growth is still significantly lower in this country than it was before 1973. And of course, you know, the value of the iPhone is reflected in GDP. So that that's counted, so to speak. You have to keep in mind in earlier eras, penicillin once was unavailable altogether and then it became pretty cheap. So and you're, arguably that's a bigger gain than the iPhone. You're saying that overall, and obviously this definitely is shown in your book, that equality is or inequality is overstated and that it's not as a big deal as people say it is right now? In contemporary American political discourse, yes. Okay. Now, I want to ask you for a second about altruism. Do you think it's better to take the Bill Gates approach of amassing massive wealth in the first half of one's life and then dedicate the second half to giving back most of it? Or do you think uh, it's better off just donating a small percentage of your income? No, I'm a big fan of the Bill Gates approach. I mean, if you can do it. Of course, most people can't be Bill Gates or even have much of a shot of it. But I think uh, that's the way to go if you're in that position. So... I'm a big fan of his, and I applaud his efforts. And for the average person, do you think they should? Which approach do you think they should take? I argue in my book that the average person should, at the margin, be more altruistic and look for growth-enhancing charity. And there are many such such options. My personal favorite ones are global, uh, in Mexico and Ethiopia. But of course, those are not the only places. I think with a relatively small amount of dollars, you can have a big impact on people's lives. Now, I wanted to ask you one thing that I read uh, recently in an interview you did with New York Magazine. You said that we are going through a political period similar to that of the 19th century. My question is, are politics cyclical in the same way or similar way that economies are? Well, the word cyclical is maybe not entirely well defined by anyone. Uh, I think there's mean reversion in some processes, 
So if for a while you have better than average presidents, you can expect a reversion to the mean and you know then some average or maybe even worse than average presidents. So I think we had this funny period after World War II with a lot of bipartisanship and sort of things felt very good. America was a clear world leader. And I think that's gone and we're turning more on ourselves and being more bitter and partisan. And uh, while I think that's bad, I think it's a reflection, in fact, that many other things have turned out pretty well. What's the solution to that? Or do you think it'll uh, just I'm solve not itself? Sure there is a solution. I don't think it's worth having a common enemy to unify us. But if you just want a solution at all costs, that's probably what will do it. So who should that common enemy be, China or someone else? Well, right now it's looking like China. Again, I'm not a China hawk. I don't think it's worth the price. But if you simply want to unify this country, uh, that's the most likely way it would happen. Do you think that is what Donald Trump is trying to do, or is it just kind of a coincidence? I think partly he's trying to do that, to unify the country, and I think partly he believes somehow China must be stopped and we need to get tough with China. I agree with part of what he's doing. I think China has stolen an enormous amount from American companies and engaged in extensive espionage, and we need to push back in some way. By no means do I endorse all of what he's doing, but I think Obama too much looked the other way. Okay. Very interesting. Now, I wanted to shift subjects here for a second and talk about education since you are very much entrenched in that world. My first question is, do you think the current university model is sustainable or do you think that over the next, say, 20 years, we'll see a big shift in uh, universities? Well, I guess I would say both. So I think over the next 20 years, you will have a continuing and very large number of bankruptcies and consolidations in higher ed. But they will not be the schools that most people have heard of. They'll be like small schools in the Middle West, uh, Midwest professional schools, just going under. And that's happening already. So it doesn't make sense that we have so many small institutions. But that said, the big state schools, like the famous Ivy League schools, I think they're here for good. They absolutely have a sustainable model. They're also powerful hedge funds. I really don't see them going away anytime soon. Do you think that, well, I guess I should ask you this. If you could make three changes to the current K through 12 educational system to make the largest possible improvement, what would they be? Higher status for teachers, pay good teachers more, fire bad teachers. I think they're all possible. They've all been done by other countries. Uh, some schools in America do that, but I think we need to do way, way more. What would we have to do to be able to fire teachers that we that's stopping us right now? simply have the will to do it. In some districts, unions are a problem, but often unions are not the problem. Just we don't quite prioritize it uh, the way we ought to. And at the university level, should we be stressing trade schools more? Should they be more common? Uh, probably more common, but we've actually come a long way in doing that already. So a lot of community colleges are much more vocational tech schools than they look like. So, you know, I'm, I'm very favorable toward that development, but I think a lot of people underrate how well we've already done it. Should, uh, should uh, liberal arts degrees be much cheaper than they are? Do you think people should be going into debt to get liberal arts degrees? Not saying that they don't have value, but in the workplace, it's harder to get a job with one of those than, say, an engineering degree. Well, should is a tricky word. I'd like to see people innovate to make higher education cheaper. I think we're doing it. Uh, but it's a slow, arduous process. I don't think we can just wave a magic wand and make it all cheaper. 
and maintain quality. What do you uh, think? It is... seems to me there's a lot of bloat in higher ed, and uh, we need more freedom of entry. Accreditors need to be more liberal, and I think we'll get there. So, do you think that that bloat is what's causing the prices to be as high as they are? Like as as we've seen, the cost has gone up a lot over the last twenty, thirty years. What is the main cause of that? You think? Well, some of it's bloat, of course, <clears throat> which I oppose. But a lot of it is simply market demand. Like the degrees are worth a lot, and there are plenty of studies which estimate the return to higher education, and it's pretty robust. Like it's worth it for most people to get those degrees. That doesn't mean it should cost what it does. Like my iPhone is expensive; it's worth it to me. But over time, that price will fall as we innovate. And higher ed needs to be a bit more like, say, cheaper smartphones, and a bit less like healthcare, which is just going to stay expensive forever. <clears throat> In the field of economics, whose modern work, someone alive today, uh, be it philosophical, well, I guess philosophical or economic, do you think has the best chance of standing the test of time and be remembered, say, 100 years from now, besides yourself, of course? Well, I'm not really a contender for that. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to promote a particular idea. I'm trying to promote a way of thinking. And I think that's somewhat time specific. Uh, there are very few economists from 100 years ago we still talk about. Uh, arguably, there are not any. So 100 years from now, I think we will have moved on, and there's no living economist uh, whose name will be in popular intellectual discussions among well-educated people. No one. Okay. Everyone's too specialized. Sort of what they've done will still matter, but their names, they'll just be like something pulled out of a hat. And this is kind of stemming from your uh, podcast where you – talk about uh, things that are underrated and overrated. My question for you is, in economics, what idea is most underrated and what idea is most overrated? Oh, I think the idea that is most underrated is just the economic method as a powerful means of generating new hypotheses. There are just so, so, so many criticisms of economics. A lot of them are mostly correct, but economics is still useful just as a way of organizing your thoughts. And I often say the best argument for economics is to talk to someone who doesn't really know any. And uh, which idea do you think is overrated? The idea in economics right now is simply people who have very detailed views on what the Fed like, should do or has to do or what to do. Do you, for the most part, making that up, you know, half of them probably will turn out to be right. But I view that as somewhat of a pseudoscience. Do you think the Fed does more damage than good, or do you think it does more good than damage? Uh, it does far more good than damage, at least over the last few decades. The broader history is more debatable. Uh, but certainly since, say, 1979, it's been a, a strong net positive for the U.S. economy. Now, speaking of uh, the Fed, I guess this is kind of related. You know, a lot of countries have massive amounts of debt, and it's growing. Is it possible for a president or political leader to win a campaign that promotes austerity as the solution? I see austerity happening only in crunch situations. Uh, I don't think, for instance, the United States is just going to wake up and fix its debt problem. Uh, some countries might. So countries like Norway, Singapore, Switzerland, they don't even have the debt problem to begin with the way we do. But I think they have the political will and ability to fix issues like that when they arise. Uh, the United States does not. We're too diverse. We're too polarized. Uh, we're too consumption-oriented. 
Do you think it's possible on the consumption oriented for the U.S. to go back to a savings first country? Or do you think that's something that's too difficult at this point? It seems too difficult at this point. I don't fully understand why. Before the 1980s, our savings rate was often higher than that of Western Europe. And since the early 80s, it's pretty much always been below that of Western Europe. Some of that may be healthcare costs. Some of that may be just like American retail is more fun and cheaper and better. Uh, but still, I feel that's poorly understood. So based on your thesis that it's better to save than spend, do you think the U.S. will eventually be passed by other countries if they if we continue on this route of consumerism? Well, it depends what you mean by past. I mean, Singapore already has a higher per capita income than the United States does. So a bunch of places have passed us. Uh, but we are the world's number one leader in innovation. I don't see anyone coming close to us anytime soon. We have one of the highest living standards. Uh, partly we have high debt because we can get away with it. People want to hold treasury securities. That's dangerous too. It means you'll take out more and more debt. Uh, but I'm not a mega pessimist about the U.S. economy. We just make a lot of stupid mistakes, which we could and should fix, uh, precisely because we do pretty well. That's partly why we don't fix them. And as far as the workplace going into the future, you know, for a long time now, for probably over 100 years now, economists and others have been predicting that, you know, in the future, there will be 20-hour, 10-hour, 5-hour work weeks. But those predictions have never come true. Uh, we see those same predictions being made today with the rise of AI, that within 40, 50 years, most people won't be working or will be working very little. Is this time different or are these people falling to the same trap or humans just you know, very unimaginative when it comes to the future of work? Well, I think people like working. I don't want to ever retire. If my health holds up, it gives you validation and a social network and a source of esteem and somewhere to go in the morning. I know not all jobs are equally good, uh, but I think work will prove pretty robust. Let's talk about learning for a second, especially self-learning. There seems to be a correlation between self-learners and entrepreneurs. Do you think this is a coincidence or is there something more there? No, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to teach yourself so many things. You just don't learn nearly enough in school or with an MBA. With an MBA. So you're self-driven and then you've got to relearn and then you have to learn new things every year. So that to me is a very strong correlation, very necessary. And how much time should people spend learning versus doing if they want to be a entrepreneur or something of that nature? Well, I'm not sure there's a general answer to that question, but I believe we should all have something like personal coaches, you know, mentors, many, many mentors, people who will tell you when you're getting the balance wrong. Uh, you can't just figure it out yourself. And as a lifelong learner yourself, what's something in the last 12 months that you've been fascinated by or maybe even a little obsessed with? Uh, reading Homer's Odyssey, that great, wonderful tale from ancient Greece, trying to figure out what's really in the book. There's a new translation by Emily Wilson. I'm going to have her on my podcast, Conversations with Tyler. And I think it's one of the greatest books ever written. And a lot of smart people aren't quite aware of it unless they do humanities. Very interesting. Do you think people should go back and read more classics like that that we probably take for granted? Absolutely. I'm a big advocate of that. And maybe someday I'll write a book arguing as such. Interesting. What was the last meaningful thing you changed your mind on? Well, I don't know what meaningful means. Uh, the course of the U.S.-China trade war has surprised me a number of times very recently. 
So I would say on that issue, I'm changing my mind pretty much every day. Uh, arresting the CFO of Huawei in, in Canada was to me quite a shock. And it's changing my mind about what is the underlying political equilibrium. And I find that quite pessimistic. To me, that's meaningful. Interesting. And I want to ask you about your new um, venture, Emergent Ventures. You wanted to find people or groups that are, as you said, not likely to get funding from anywhere else and kind of are doing things that are smaller or might not necessarily be profitable. What is the ultimate, what would success look like for Emergent Ventures in your eyes? Well, just last night, uh, we made a small grant to a gentleman who is building a board game, and this board game will teach people economics. And he's been working on this game for 10 years. Now, he still needs to find a major company to accept and market the game. Uh, but this would be a whole new way people could learn economics, something much better than what they get when they play, say, Monopoly. So in his case, success would look like his game uh, being bought by a lot of people. And we'll see if that happens. Uh, but we've now made 16 or 17 uh, grants. And I'm quite sure, you know, not all of them will succeed. But if a bunch do, I'll be very happy. And of course, there's more to come. More broadly speaking, I would consider Emergent Ventures a success if other people uh, copy the model in some way of having like zero fixed cost overhead for charitable giving. So we run on a shoestring. All the money we take in goes out to actual people. And one final question. You're an avid traveler and you often discuss the virtues of travel, but how do you suggest people go about traveling? Like what should they do when they arrive in a new place? Most people kind of just go to the most common tourist attraction, uh, which are probably popular for a reason. But do you have any advice for people who, when they're visiting a new place to not just visit the most popular attractions? How should they go about it? Well, I would say immerse yourself, but you know, the popular attractions are often popular for a good reason. So I don't want to steer people away from them, but just try to talk with people there. And the main thing is just to go. Like once you go, you'll figure it out. There's so much status quo bias, so much inertia. People think travel is costly or dangerous or whatever, and they just don't go. So like my advice is just go, go, go. Those three words are, are the wisest thing I have to say about travel. Go. If someone has uh, already been to many of the more popular places, say Rome, Paris, London, what would you say is a place that they should visit that they probably haven't? Well, they could email me and ask for advice. It depends what they've already liked. Okay. Uh, I'm a big fan of Sicily in Italy. I love going to Singapore. Uh, I was just in Ethiopia for the second time. That's a great visit, and it's quite safe and orderly. So those would be some off-the-top-of-my-head recommendations. All right. Well, Tyler, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure speaking to you. For everyone listening, how can they find you online and uh, anything else you want to add? I'm on Twitter at Tyler Cowan. My blog is Marginal Revolution. My podcast is Conversations with Tyler. My online videos are Marginal Revolution University and my books are on Amazon. All right. Full product line, so to speak. For everyone listening, please check Tyler out if you haven't already. He is one of my personal favorite people to follow online. So thank you very much, Tyler. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. You too.
Hey guys, David here again. Before you go, I just wanted to thank you again for listening. I really do hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, I would greatly appreciate it if you could share this episode with someone or multiple people who you think would also enjoy listening to it. We uh, are always looking to expand our audience to people who you think would also enjoy the content. And if you did enjoy, also please leave a rating and review on itunes and google play it greatly helps us out so i would greatly appreciate it anyways thank you guys so much for listening we will be back next week with another episode bye-bye